Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Think about animals in the cold New England ocean. I'm thinking lobsters, mussels, seals, maybe even sharks. We're going to learn about a lesser-known creature lurking there. It's coral. And we descended down, and I just saw so many hundreds of white and brown colonies everywhere. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. Why some scientists believe this northern star coral could hold valuable secrets for fighting climate change. And we look at what it would take to create an effective public transit system and cut back personal car use in Vermont. I called up a junkyard and they came and got it. And I thought, I'm going to try to do without a car. Plus, the making of a punk rocker. And I was going to play the drums. Suddenly I had a group, you know, but it was, we had no idea what we were doing. Eventually they figured it out and inspired future generations of female rockers. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks so much for joining us. Today, we have an update on a story we've been following. WBUR first broke the news in August about the federal government ending an application process for seriously ill migrants. It's an option called deferred action. This allowed some non-citizens to stay in the U.S. while receiving medical treatment that's not available in their home country. After weeks of public outcry, the process was reinstated in September. And today, reporter Shannon Dooling brings us this update from a family who's living the experience in Boston. 16-year-old Jonathan Sanchez entered the U.S. with his family on tourist visas in 2016. They're from Honduras, and they came to Boston seeking treatment for Jonathan's cystic fibrosis. After extending their tourist visas for as long as they could, their best option was to apply for deferred action on the basis of medical need. Back in August, they got a letter saying deferred action was no longer being processed and they'd need to leave the country in 33 days or be placed in deportation proceedings. If they deny the program that I need to go back to my country, I'll probably die. Because in my country, there is no treatment for CF. Doctors don't even know what's the disease. The only ones who can help me are here in the United States. Stories of other applicants being denied came in from across the country. Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley was instrumental in helping reinstate the process after calling for congressional hearings. And then, a few weeks ago, the Sanchez family finally heard their application has been approved. When he first heard the news, he sighed and felt relieved and said, oh great, now we'll be able to sleep. (laughs) That's Jonathan's mother, Mariela Sanchez. Since the approval, Jonathan has been admitted into the hospital with a bacterial infection. But his mom says she's relieved because they now have at least two years to focus on Jonathan's health in the U.S. without fear of deportation. Um, 
Estamos muy contentos porque We are very happy because they heard us and they are helping us find a solution for our son in terms of health. En cuanto a su salud. While the Sanchez family is somewhat optimistic, the situation is murkier for others. The Irish International Immigrant Center filed 19 medical deferred action applications in Boston and is still waiting for decisions on most of them. Anthony Marino heads up legal services for the center. It's hard because we want to be positive and I'd like to be optimistic, but that we have seen so much from this government um, that makes us have to question what their actual motives are and whether or not they're being honest. Marino says the majority of his organization's clients are families with sick children battling illnesses like cancer and muscular dystrophy. Since the federal government agreed to reopen pending cases in September, Marino says he's received only two responses from U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, both approvals, including the Sanchez's. Then we started receiving requests that we resubmit um, evidence that had already been submitted in several cases. Really, until we see final approvals for each of these families, we don't really know what's going on. Officials with Citizenship and Immigration Services have repeatedly said there is no formal process or program for medical deferred action. Instead, these are simply individual applications submitted at local field offices. Everyone with a pending application as of August 7th has had their case reopened, and they'll be considered on a case-by-case basis, according to an agency spokesman. The Irish International Immigrant Center has a lawsuit pending in Boston federal court challenging the Trump administration's end of medical deferred action. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Shannon Dooling. About 400 North Atlantic right whales are left in the world. And federal scientists say the top reason they're dying is they're getting caught in fishing gear. There are new types of gear designed to protect these endangered whales. And there's a movement which is emerging among conservation groups to create a seafood label that would tell consumers if a lobster has been caught using that whale-safe gear. But as Fred Bever reports, it could be a tough sell in Maine where some say the iconic fishery is already sustainable. A specific whale-friendly or even whale-safe moniker would likely apply to lobster harvested from traps with weak breakaway rope or remote-controlled ropeless gear systems. Scientists and conservationists say such gear changes, while still in the developmental stage, could reduce or even eliminate the risk that whales will be injured or killed by entanglements. That's really important that fishermen that are willing to test this gear, and certainly those fishermen fishing with with ropeless gear, should be rewarded. Erica Fuller is a lawyer at the Conservation Law Foundation, one of several organizations suing the federal government for stronger protections of the roughly 400 North Atlantic right whales remaining on the planet. Fuller says that as legal and federal regulatory actions proceed, encouraging lobstermen to make costly investments in the latest technologies would likely hasten their adoption. I think there's, you know, enough data to show that the American public is willing to pay more for food that's been sustainably caught. And I think that if someone were to take uh, the initiative to get even a small, either like a high-end restaurant or if it's a small um, lobster shack like a Luke's Lobster or whatever, you know, 
I think that you could start with a market that's small that says, you know, we we have this thing that nobody else has, which is whale-safe lobster. There are already a lot of companies asking for sustainable seafood. At a recent meeting in Portland, Michelle Cho, who directs the Bycatch Solutions Program at Boston's New England Aquarium, said she is hearing interest from distributors who serve big companies such as Walmart and Kroger. She cautions, though, that there would be many challenges in scaling up a verifiable whale-safe lobster program, chief among them the ability to trace any given lobster from trap to table. And the fact that lobsters in particular, are there's a whole live market, and some of them are pounded and not necessarily um, pounded where they were caught or processed and maybe processed not even in the same country that they were caught. So that is like is a really added layer and is going to be a big challenge for scaling anything like that up, I think. Maine's lobster industry does have some experience tracing product for marketing incentives. For several years, 14 distributors that take lobsters from Maine fishermen have been certified by the International Marine Stewardship Council. The MSC logo is an established certifier of sustainable fisheries claims. Jim Marcos, general manager at the Maine Shellfish Company, says the MSC label has been most useful when selling lobster to European markets, where consumers are willing to pay a premium for confidence in the fishery's sustainability. And Marcos says a certification program specific to whale-friendly practices could be viable if it were driven by consumer demand. If it is consumer-driven and if it is possible for a certain lobster fisherman to comply with that, I'll call it a certification, then it will find a place just like MSC certification has. MSC requires annual third-party audits for compliance with standards to ensure a fishery's persistence, and it includes conditions for minimizing harm to other species, such as the endangered right whales. MSC officials completed the most recent audit of Maine's lobster fishery in September, and MSC's fisheries manager, Marin Hawks, says consumers should be confident that MSC certification shows the whales are being protected from harm by the Maine lobster fishery. She adds that the next audit in April will determine whether the fishery continues to meet certification conditions. But she says the council would not revise its standards to require ropeless fishing unless that becomes a recognized standard worldwide. And the way that we view our program is that we are riding behind just the crest of the wave. And so if it was ropeless fishing was considered to be global best practice, then yes, we would revise our standard to include it. But until that time, we're not prescriptive in fishing methods. Here in Maine, many in the industry say that the existing MSC certification is sufficient and that a new program would be redundant. Those include the executive director of the Maine Lobster Dealers Association and David Sullivan, a special representative to the Maine Lobstering Union, also known as Lobster 207. Well, here's the thing. All of Maine is whale safe. We haven't entangled a single whale since 2002. We haven't killed a single. They can't even tell us if we've ever killed a whale. So I would say that Maine is already whale, whale safe. Lobster 207, the Maine Lobstermen's Association, and even Patrick Kelleher, the commissioner of the Department of Marine Resources, all share the view of most Maine lobstermen. Ropeless tech is years away from viability for Maine's diverse fleet and variable ocean floor. But Robert Martin, a Massachusetts lobsterman who's been using the remote control gear, says it may be closer than they think. Mine just came out of the water. I was actively fishing it 
from the summer through this fall. I was actually fish fishing it. It wasn't just testing it. We worked on a lot of stuff with it, and basically right now it's we've never had a failure. Martin predicts that once Maine lobstermen face the same reality he did early this decade, a federal closure of his usual fishing grounds to protect the whales, they might wish they'd tried out new gear earlier. And for his part, Martin is hoping that a whale-friendly branding program will be created, giving him a chance to earn a little extra money. Instead of stomping your feet, throwing your hand out, kicking in the sand, you're going to get a dirty hat. Try it. You don't know. You don't even know it until you try it. We've done it. And conservationists say that under current practices, Marine Stewardship Council certification or not, the Maine lobster fishery poses an unacceptable risk for the whales. And there is at least one other ratings program that agrees. Canada-based OceanWise labels the Gulf of Maine lobster fishery as not recommended due to the risk for entanglement of endangered whales and turtles. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Portland, Maine. There's another creature lurking in New England's cold ocean water. It's coral. As Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill reports, some scientists now believe one variety, the northern star coral, could hold valuable secrets for fighting climate change. Inside a lab run by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in Milford, I'm looking at something strange, found right off the Connecticut coast. The coral that exists in Connecticut is called Estrangia poculata. That's Sean Grace, a biologist at Southern Connecticut State University. He says that name, Estrangia, captures the surprise scientists felt when they observed this coral centuries ago. So you can imagine back then, they pulled it up and looked at it and went, well, that's a strange thing to see off the coast of, you know, New Jersey, mid-Atlantic. Today, this species of Estrangia, also known as the northern star coral, is dispersed widely. From southern New England, it goes down the eastern seaboard into the Gulf of Mexico. Corals are animals, invertebrates related to jellyfish, and they create important ecosystems, preventing coastal erosion and providing habitat for thousands of creatures. Many have a symbiotic relationship with algae called zooxanthellae. It's what makes tropical corals so colorful. When corals lose that algae, they can die. But Grace says for Estrangia, that's not the case. When you find a coral that's become white, it's called bleached. And yet, in New England, we have this coral species that exists with and without zooxanthellae, and it does fine. One of Estrangia's many mysteries. Grace and NOAA scientist David Ballou dig deeper into Estrangia's other secrets. Ballou stands next to an array of test bays, gesturing to a labyrinth of nearby pipes that connect with Long Island Sound. The seawater comes in. We've got them at 18 degrees Celsius. Uh, This is raw seawater going through these. Scientists bubble in carbon dioxide. In the sky, CO2 traps heat, raising Earth's average temperature. In the ocean, it causes seawater to become more acidic, which can be bad for coral skeletons. Grace tweaks the pH across the bays. The idea is to simulate possible future ocean chemistry. These are the most basic studies that we can start with. But if we go from this and we look at the responses that these corals have, okay, we can then start looking at their genes. And in those genes, Grace says, are secrets, a playbook that might explain how this coral survives without algae or withstands the cold of New England's winter. And um, maybe put those in tropical corals or grow those into tropical corals where they become more resistant to environmental factors that might affect them. To learn more about those secrets, we leave the lab, driving a few miles to a nearby beach. 
The plan is to collect colonies of Estrangia, which will get sent to Penn State for genetic testing. Sound like Darth Vader. Former student Gabriella DePreta puts on her diving gear. She's getting ready to go underwater with Grace and remembers the first time she saw a stranger on a dive in Narragansett Bay. And we descended down, and I just saw so many hundreds of white and brown colonies everywhere. And it really intrigued my interest because I, as many other people in New England and around the U.S., don't even know that we have coral up here, right, because of these cold temperatures. The pair slosh into the murky ocean, disappearing beneath the water's surface. It's raining, and on the shore, I'm soaked, watching as a buoy tethered to the diver slowly circles an offshore rock. Nearly an hour later, Grace comes back, breathless and apologetic. He lost his dive bag. But we got some, so good enough. He pours out the small handful of coral. He says it's enough material for genetic testing. By now, the beach is abandoned. We're wet and cold. We all want to get inside and warm up. But for a moment, we share this strange sight, a hardy coral resting before us on a cold New England beach, which may harbor secrets that will save tropical corals hundreds of miles away. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill in Hartford. After the break, what it would take to improve public transportation in Vermont. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. This next story grapples with the big questions surrounding public transportation how to make it more convenient, how to encourage people to use what's already there, how to just get people to change their habits. We head to Vermont, where a lot of people pride themselves on being environmentally ethical, but there is this ugly truth. More than 43% of Vermont's greenhouse gas emissions come from transportation like cars, trucks, and buses, and it's rising, while public transportation isn't making much headway. The podcast Brave Little State from Vermont Public Radio tackles public transportation. Here's Angela Evansy and Peter Hirschfeld. Kurt McCormick used to love cars, especially the Triumph TR3 he owned when he was a teenager. You probably don't know what that is. It's a British sports car, very small, really fun. And he's always admired the engineering that makes the automobile run. I was a backyard car mechanic. I loved cars. The internal combustion engine is an amazing thing. As McCormick got older, though, he began to realize that these amazing things were doing some serious damage. Yeah, the 40-some-odd thousand people that are killed every year, climate change, (laughs) the air pollution, the several hundred thousand people that still die from air pollution every year in the U.S. So sometimes when you love something, you have to let it go. McCormick doesn't drive anymore or even own a car. He hasn't since 2002, when his Nissan Sentra took its last breath. I called up a junkyard, and they came and got it. And I thought, I'm going to try to do without a car. 
and it was surprisingly easy. The 67-year-old Burlington resident is tall and thin, maybe from all the walking and biking he does, and he says he can get to work in Montpelier and just about anywhere else he needs to go without a car. But he lives in downtown Burlington, and he can literally see the nearest bus stop from his living room window. Anyway, you'll see it. It'll be right where that white car is. That's a stop right there. Sometimes I'm literally running off my porch, waving, trying to get him to not pull out. The reason McCormick decided to give up his car was to force himself to use public transportation to make his lifestyle align with his values. There are probably lots of people in Vermont who would like to do less driving, but what about the ones who can't see the bus stop from their house? I have the sense that people who live in Burlington maybe do have an effective system, but I live in central Vermont. This is Eve Jacobs Carnahan. She lives in Montpelier. For the past four years, she and her husband, Paul Carnahan, have been sharing a car. A Tesla Model 3. What we tend to do is plan ahead for the week and I'll say, okay. Eve works at home. Her husband Paul works in Barrie, so he usually gets the car. But say Eve has an afternoon meeting in Waterbury. There's no bus to Waterbury in the afternoon. I'm going to have to have the car that day. So Paul will catch the morning bus to Barrie. It works pretty well when the weather is good. It tends to not be able to keep its schedule when the weather is bad, and that's when it's most uncomfortable. When they can't make the bus work, either Paul or Eve will call a colleague or friend and ask for a ride. And my friends have now figured out that they're going to hear from me for some (laughs) of these regular monthly meetings. They now will approach me and say, hey, our monthly meeting of such and such is coming up. Do you want a ride? That's really interesting. So essentially, you, you're you relying on other people who have cars. And, and that's the way that you, between the two of you, with like some help from carpooling and so forth, can make it work. Yes. Eve and Paul could afford two cars. They shared just one by choice to shrink their carbon footprint. But it's not easy. To get to Waterbury, to get to Burlington on the weekend, there is no good system. And Every time I run into some sort of frustration with not being able to get somewhere because I'm not the one with the car that day, I just say, why don't we have a better transit system here? Eve Jacobs-Carnahan, if you haven't figured it out, is today's question asker. What will it take to create an effective public transit system that enables Vermonters to dramatically reduce automobile use? A.K.A. how can we all drive less? The other reason that I really wonder about this is because Vermonters pride themselves on being so environmentally conscious. But this just seems to be a real conundrum. It's a conundrum, all right. Remember Kurt McCormick, the voluntarily carless guy we met at the very beginning? Not to bury the lead, but he's actually a state representative. When he commutes to Montpelier by bus, it's to the Vermont State House. And McCormick is also the chair of the House Transportation Committee. If anyone would have the answer to Eve's question... It's him. So, Kurt, what would it take to create a public transportation system that allowed Vermonters to dramatically reduce their reliance on cars? Well, I have the same question, and, I, and I've been clearly tasked with trying to solve that by the speaker when I was made chairman. So, does that mean you have the answer? It, it does not. All told, Vermont spends about $40 million a year on public transportation, and it turns out that's pretty high. 
compared to other rural states, at least. There are places that you can live in uh, Vermont without having your own car. Burlington comes to mind. Some of our downtown centers have circulator services. That's Ross McDonald there. What's your current title right now? Public Transit Coordinator and Go Vermont uh, Program Manager. McDonald says one of the reasons he loves his job is that Vermont takes public transit really seriously. Vermont is one of 11 states with more than 40 percent of its population living in rural areas, and we spend 10 times more on public transit per capita than all but one of those states. Ross McDonald says that money funds a pretty robust network that provided almost 5 million so-called user trips in 2018. Traditional fixed route services uh, are generally in operation along those corridors that justify the investment. A fixed route service is when a public transit vehicle, buses in Vermont usually, travels a designated route on a fixed schedule, like the Montpelier Link Express, which takes the same route from Montpelier to Burlington at the same time every weekday. According to McDonald, the places that justify the investment in these kinds of services are places that have a lot of people or along busy highway corridors. McDonald says that means if you live in a super rural area, you probably won't find a fixed route bus anywhere nearby, and you're probably going to have a rough time getting around without a car. And McDonald says for him, Eve's inquiry begets another interesting question. When I saw the brave little state question, I was wondering would we be interested even as a population to consider the nuances, the tax incentives and disincentives, the land use patterns to generate the revenues to provide public transit service to get everybody to where they want to get to when they want to get there? It's a good question. So what do Vermonters want from their public transportation system? One of the things that I would love to see as far as bus routes go is a bus that connects St. Albans to Milton. We took this opportunity to ask you, our brilliant audience, how you would improve public transit here. And as always, you delivered. Right now you can take the St. Albans commuter and get to Burlington. You can take the Milton commuter and get from Burlington to Milton, but there's no bus that connects the two. Hi, brave little state. Uh, my name is Dustin Tanner. Hi, my name is Kim Graham. I'm in Barrie, Vermont. This is Bennett from Middlesex. My name is Diana. Peter John Cape. Annie Stratton. John Snell. My name is Molly DeFont. I live in Rockaberry, Vermont, and would love to see some sort of electric rail along the 12A corridor of the Amtrak. I guess if I was dreaming out loud, I'd love to see high-speed rail between Montreal and Boston and Montreal and New York City that had stops in Vermont. I commute to Montpelier from Hardwick three, sometimes four times per week for work. Nothing really exists for this section of the state. I'm an elder in Vermont, in Brandon, and there are few options. And I mean high-speed rail between 320 and 400 kilometers per hour. Truly high speed. That would be fantastic. What's frustrating, I can catch the train at Rutland at breakfast and be in Washington, D.C. by supper time. Yet going to Boston is much more complex. Even going to Montpelier from my town is complicated. I would love to see public transportation offered at least from Burlington through to Montpelier, maybe even further down into the West Lebanon White River Junction area. My dream public transit improvement would be to be able to get on a school bus. School buses travel the back roads, and it would solve the first mile, last mile problem as it's known in public transportation. My ideas for public transit improvement are to be able to walk out to the curb anywhere at any time, 
stick out my thumb or hold up a sign and get picked up by the next car that came along. How could that happen? Well, we could select cars that are safe and well-maintained and drivers that are safe and well-maintained uh, and allow them to become basically public Uber drivers. And with technology, I'm sure we can figure out a way to make it affordable for the state. Why not give people more options to get around? And I'd also love to see some more weekend service. We are looking at change, and we have the opportunity to decide what that change looks like. Thanks so much. Thank you. And I hope uh, this gets on the air. Bye. It's one thing to fantasize about public transit utopias of the future, but for some people in Vermont, the question of how to get from point A to point B is more urgent. Am I at the right place? Huh? Am I at the right place? Are you... Peter Hirschfeld. Peter Hirschfeld. I thought you were bigger. Hi, <laughs> I'm Marsh Kepnes. You thought I was bigger? Yeah. Television fattens people up. <laughs> what do they say? Camera adds 10 pounds? It does. It does. Marsha Kepnes is 71 years old, and she lives in an old pink house about a mile outside Barry City. She's seen me on public television before, apparently, which is why she's surprised at my appearance in person. We're talking to Kepnes because she doesn't have a car. Not because she wouldn't love to drive, but because she can't. I have never, never driven. Okay. Because I've, I've always been legally blind. That part about never driving isn't entirely true. When Kepnes was a teenager, her dad let her get behind the wheel during a visit to Cape Cod. I... Pressed too hard on the gas because I wasn't used to the pedals, and we went up a sand dune, and my and that was the the last time my father took 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 me driving. Kepnes moved to Vermont from the Boston area when she was in her late twenties. I knew when I came came when I came up here that I could that I that it was unfair to expect anything like anything like the MT, MTA in Boston. And for a while, at least, Kepnes says the public transportation system in Barrie was more than serviceable. She could get to her kids' schools, go to all the food stores and shopping centers she liked, but then her knees gave out, and she couldn't navigate the mile-long walk down the hill to the nearest bus stop. As situations in, in, in increase my need, the transportation system became less and less adequate. Remember when we talked about fixed route service? Well, Marsha Kepnes relies on a different kind of public transit called demand response. It's when a customer requests a ride in advance and then a bus or van or car takes them directly to their destination. So when Kepnes needs to go somewhere, she relies on volunteer drivers from the Vermont Association for the Blind and demand response buses run by Green Mountain Transit. It all sounds well and good, but in order to assure a ride, Kepnes says she often has to book a week in advance. This is the trouble with this system. You have to plan. I have no spontaneity or urgency, and that's the great anxiety. When I visited Kepnes, Barry had just gotten its first winter storm of the year. And Kepnes says the day before it came, she realized she didn't have any salt to melt the ice that would soon be covering her sidewalk. I just was beside myself with, ang- with anxiety. There were certain things that I had, had, had to get, 
And this is very rare because I try to live so I don't run out, but occasionally you have to get stuff. Kepner says she lays awake at night, gaming out strategies to get to the places she needs to go. How am I going to manage and rearrange my life, and who can I ask, and who can I count, 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 count on, if I've got an ur- urgent need? Boy, that is a tough thing. That is very hard. It's very, very stressful. This is half my life is planning my transportation. So we've got people like Marsha Kepnes who need public transportation. And then we've got people like our question asker Eve who want to use more of it. But like we've heard, the current system isn't really working for either of them. Which brings us back to the question we started with. What would it take to create a public transportation system that actually allows people to drive less or not at all? Angela and I figured the answer to Eve's question would be all about infrastructure. Big engineering projects, shiny new fleets of buses. But it turns out there's another huge variable here, human behavior. And, dare we say it, hypocrisy. The environmental community in Vermont is sizable. Uh, I think it's large enough if half of them used transit instead of their cars at least a lot of the times, if not most of the time, um, that would make more than a dent. Kurt McCormick, the state rep who chairs the House Transportation Committee, says if Vermonters really want better public transit, then we've all got to walk the walk, or rather, ride the bus. It's nowhere near its potential. When you see a bus with 30 seats on it and there's only four people in the bus, Obviously, there's a potential for 30 to have seats. McCormick is raising a nagging question here about ridership. It increased steadily in Vermont from 2012 to 2015, but it dropped off in 2016. And according to a new state report, the numbers still haven't recovered. Until they do, McCormick says it'll be almost impossible to convince lawmakers to spend more money on upgrades. It's very difficult politically to put more money into transit if it doesn't look very likely that people will ride that transit. It's a sort of, if you build it, will they come question. This is Rochelle Gould. She's an assistant professor at the Rubinstein School at the University of Vermont. Absolutely, people need to want to engage in low-carbon forms of transportation. They have to want to try something other than their car. Gould studies environmental values and behavior. And she says even with growing awareness of climate change, old driving habits die hard. This becomes very complicated. Think about how am I going to manage getting myself from A to B to C and with kids and with pets and with everything else. How is this all going to work? If you own a car, you can probably relate to this. It's the same deal for our question asker Eve and her husband Paul. My husband might wait an extra 20 minutes or half an hour because the bus is really late. And so that's really frustrating. So that's one of the reasons he he usually gets to have the car. So part of this is on us and our willingness to really change our daily routine for the greater good. Rochelle Gould says a lot of our choices come down to this dichotomy, convenience versus morality. I think the way to approach this issue of transportation is to, is to work on both sides of that issue. So make it more and more convenient make it more and more feasible to do this in a practical way, to get around. 
without a car and also work on you know, awareness of this issue and, and how does it play into our larger moral concerns as a society, as a globe? That was the podcast Brave Little State from Vermont Public Radio. To hear the rest of the episode and how to make a dramatic transportation change, head to vpr.org. Coming up, the story of a drummer in a 1970s punk band who helped inspire a whole generation of female rockers. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. A whole generation of female rock and roll musicians, bands like Bikini Kill and Slater Kinney, say they were inspired by a little-known punk band from the 1970s called The Slits. The drummer for the Slits lives in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Her name is Paloma McLarty, but she's better known as Palm Olive. Producer Andrea Batanzos has a profile of the punk rock musician. So in 1973, Paloma fled Spain. She left her parents, her boyfriend, her home. She was 17 years old. I was kind of like desperate to find a different way of life, really. A friend gave Paloma an address of someone in London she didn't know and she'd never heard of. First time ever on a plane, and she just showed up on their doorstep. So I knocked on their door, and they were shocked to see this girl there, like, what are we going to do? I had no idea about anything. They gave me a bowl for cereal and milk, and I didn't know that you put the two together. I had no clue, no clue. España cumple en los momentos actuales. Back in Malaga, Paloma had grown up under the last reverberations of Francisco Franco's dictatorship. Culturally, it was very repressive, conservative, Catholic. I remember one time bringing a book home, and there was a discussion about how that book couldn't be in the house because it was forbidden. There were rules that needed to be followed, but this was the 1960s, and messages of dissent seeped their way through the protest songs of Joan Baez and Bob Dylan. And while Paloma appreciated Joan and Bob, she leaned in hard to Spanish singer-songwriters like Paco Ibáñez. And I just will drink their LPs. I remember like being one Christmas locked in my room just listening. I knew it by heart. The poetry resonated with her. So that was my connection with music. Never thought that I would play music in my life. You know, never had the intention, the desire, or that even it was possible. But then that possibility presented itself in London. It was 1976, and she'd arrived right at the cusp of a new kind of musical movement, where anybody could start a band. So Paloma dove in. She quickly learned English from the squatter she was living with, 
and found herself a new boyfriend, a musician named Woody Meller. He had a stage name, though, Joe Strummer, the lead singer of The Clash. Joe and Paloma were young and in love, but Paloma got restless pretty fast. She went to Scotland, back to London, thought, maybe I'll be a mime, joined a performance troupe, quit three days later because she didn't get along with the leader of the troupe. And then she picked up the drums. So I started practicing the roles, and I started playing with the drums, and I was fascinated because it was fun. And then I started, like, hitting the tom-tom and just, like, finding, you know, getting the sounds. This was a time when London was swarming with bands. And of all of them, Paloma was asked to join the Flowers of Romance, a band started by Sid Vicious. And I was going to play the drums. Suddenly I had a group, you know, but it was, we had no idea what we were doing. One night after rehearsing, Paloma remembers Sid was trying so hard to flirt with her. But he was obnoxious. He slapped a swastika on his arm. She had come from a fascist country, after all. And she just wasn't into him, so she turned him down. Next time I find out I'm not in the group, he kicked me out. I was so upset. So she thought, screw this. I said, I don't want to deal with a guy like just I have to sleep with him. And so I decided to form a group with only girls, which there weren't any. She asked friends of friends, girls she thought had no inhibitions. There were four of them, and they called themselves the Slits. There was Ari up on vocals, Viv Albertine on guitar, Tessa Pollitt on bass, and Paloma on drums. They bleached and they teased their hair as high as it would go. Paloma wore a bright red miniskirt, stilettos in the middle of the day. If we weren't practicing, we were talking about who we wanted to become. So it was all-consuming. We had no jobs. We lived in a squad, so we didn't have to pay for anything. We lived very simply. They were living and breathing punk. You know, we would buy fish and chips here and there, or a bar of chocolate or something. You know, that was our food. Like, we hardly ate. We were consumed by the group. One night, she was christened with a new name. She was at a pub and was introduced to Clash bassist Paul Simonin. And he had asked me my name, and I said, Paloma. And he said, Pomolev? Like, joking around. And I thought it was very funny. And I said, yeah, my name is Pomolev. And then it's kind of a stack. <laughs> and so Pomolev raged on. She said there was freedom in being angry. Being able to be angry, not just peace and love, but if you're angry, you're angry, that's okay, and you should be able to express that. A newspaper wrote them up as a band that made the Sex Pistols look like choir boys, and you could hear why in the first lyrics she ever wrote. I'm going to be your enemy, all for the heck of it. If you like this, I'm going to be the opposite. It was an angry call to the system. If you like peace and flowers, I'm going to give you knives and chains. <laughs> it was just ridiculous, but it was just very in your face like that. The Slits never became a household name like the Sex Pistols or the Ramones, even though they held their own. When they were deciding on a new manager, Palmolive put her foot down, and so they kicked her out. She ended up joining another influential but barely known female band, the Raincoats. When the band was just forming, Palmolive plastered ads in the windows of the Compendium Bookstore in London. They were short and to the point. Female musician wanted a strength, not a style. 
This lineup included Ana Da Silva on vocals and guitar, Gina Birch on vocals and bass, violinist Vicky Aspinall, and Paul Malive on drums. They recorded an album and even went on tour. But Paloma was beginning to realize that for her, anger was not enough. It just got tired. I just got tired. I just felt like there were some things in life that I was missing and I wasn't going to find it there. I knew that there was a spiritual world out there and I needed to focus on it. This started her on a journey that would last several years. She tried out an ashram in India. That didn't work. She tried living in an anthroposophical community. That wasn't right either. So she kept looking. She tried Christianity, but she felt let down by the church. Eventually, she decided to do away with all the conventions of religion and build a relationship to God on her own terms. So when you encounter either a group, a political group, a punk rock establishment, a church council, I don't care who they are, and they said, this is how it is. You either like it or you leave it. And it's something that goes really, really against your grain. And you know that it's not healthy, then, then it's time to leave. Decades later, Palomas left the music scene entirely. She's now living on Cape Cod. She's married, she has grandchildren, she makes apple preserves, and she started to reflect back on her life up until this point. Paloma has started the first pages of her memoir. She's thinking of calling it Adventures Close to Home. It's an ode to her favorite song, one that she wrote. Punk or no punk, Paloma does things her own way. How could I not do what I did? You know, like something in me was just driving me to really find answers. And I am glad that I did, because I am in a different place. I'm glad that I took charge of my own life, that I didn't let a system just mold me, because I don't know who I will be. I'm glad I'm not so much a product of something that someone decided I should be. In Hyannis, I'm Andrea Betanzos. You can find out more about Palmolive and the Slits. There's a documentary film, Here to be Heard, the Story of the Slits. We'll have a link to the trailer at our website, nextnewengland.org. This piece comes to us from Atlantic Public Media's training program, the Transom Story Workshop in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. We're going to leave you with a sound that's a bit more Nashville than New England. John Widgren is one of the most in-demand pedal steel guitarists in country music, and he lives in Connecticut. Here's an audio postcard from Connecticut Public Radio's Diane Orson. One, two, three. My name is John Widgren. I play the pedal steel, and I love my job. Tim Kelly, and I'm playing the acoustic guitar. This is a modern pedal steel guitar. It's the most modern iteration of what we call the old Hawaiian guitars. Hawaiian music was based on being able to take a movable bar up and down across the strings. Like this. This. 
the more modern instruments then have a series of levers on the underside that are attached to rods so that when I hit a pedal or a knee lever, what it does is it stretches the string. The first time I heard pedal steel that I noticed uh, was the great Buddy Emmons playing on a Judy Collins tune called Someday Soon. And hearing that tune and that music in that context hit my heart like an arrow. Here's the thing. The pedal steel, the way it moves, it emulates the human voice. To me, I think the sort of deeper connection to the music comes through its being related to the human voice. A lot of people sort of bemoan what is happening to the tradition of using pedal steel in country music, but I see a blossoming of pedal steel being used in other genres. Young players everywhere, and they are on fire about the instrument. I'm glad to be a part of it. Thanks for listening. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Music this week is by Todd Merrill and Goodnight Blue Moon. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.